Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, the book of Matthew, chapter 7. We've now completed two of the three chapters that Matthew devoted to Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. And every now and then, it's probably profitable to remind you that Matthew didn't write in chapters, ending one, beginning another. Rather, this was a literary invention that would come more than a millennia later in the world of church academics. The intent of adding chapters and verses was to make study of the Bible easier and sections of the Bible more convenient to universally identify and so to communicate about them among ourselves more efficiently. Nonetheless, such artificial boundaries that chapters established must be taken lightly in scripture study because they can interrupt a long flowing thought process and at times divide it in half even making that same long thought appear to be two separate ones occurring as separate instances when they are not. Now this concept of chapters didn't enter into writing until the fourth century, long after the biblical canon Old and New Testaments were established. And even then, it was only sparingly used in novels and in some narratives. Thus, we have to be careful when applying the same Western literary concept of a chapter that tries to find logical beginnings and endings to episodes in a story to the Bible. Modern literature is always written around the structure of chapters. The Bible, however, was not constructed that way because the concept of chapters didn't even exist within Jewish literature at that time. So going by chapters can, when studying God's Word, at times mislead more than it can help. Such is the case as we study the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. The words of chapters 5, 6, and 7 were one long continuous flow of divine thought without interruption. Thus, as a mental exercise, as we read the opening words of chapter 7, we should read them as merely a continuation of the final words of chapter 6. Now, before we read chapter 7, let's do a Reader's Digest summation of what we found so far in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon was aimed at the Jewish people that formed the bulk of all who were present in those hills above the Sea of Galilee. And since the population of the Jewish nation was no more monolithic than any other people, but rather it consisted of groups that each held the common beliefs but were also naturally segregated by occupation, education, and wealth. Yeshua recognizes and he acknowledges individual swaths of various Jewish groups 
when he offers what Christendom calls the Beatitudes, blessings, to open his speech. Now, nearly immediately afterward, he pauses to frame exactly what his speech is going to entail. It's going to be an instruction on the Torah. And because nearly all the people sitting before him were more educated in synagogue traditions than they were in actual biblical Torah, then he knew there would be some who might push back on what he was going to say and perhaps accuse him of teaching wrongly. Now, teaching wrongly meant that what he would say might not always match with what they heard the scribes and the Pharisees teach in their local synagogues. Therefore, he made it abundantly clear that despite what they might think at times that he was saying, in fact, nothing he would say would add to, subtract from, or change even the tiniest element or principle of the Torah or anything, for that matter, that was recorded in the entire Hebrew Bible, although it certainly would challenge some of the traditions. Now, he went so far as to say that anyone, obviously including himself, who taught against the law and the prophets or disobeyed those laws and commandments would be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Alternatively, anyone who properly taught and obeyed the law and the prophets would be considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Why did Christ invoke the idea of the kingdom of heaven? And even more, where would one fit within the kingdom societal structure based on obedience to the Torah. It's because upon John the Baptist beginning his ministry of making a road in the wilderness for the Lord, the kingdom of heaven made its first appearance on earth. In the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, the words the kingdom of heaven are not found. There's one mention in 2 Chronicles 13 about the kingdom of the Lord, uh, literally the kingdom of Yehovah, but it is a general term. It cannot be compared to Christ's mention of the kingdom of heaven or its synonym, the kingdom of God, as a real and actual entity unto itself. Yeshua speaking about the kingdom of heaven was a new revelation. This is why so many of his parables were about trying to explain to people, especially to his disciples, about what the kingdom of heaven was, how it operated, how it pertained to them. Now, believers, I want you to pay close attention to this place. The kingdom of heaven descended from heaven and began its existence on earth during Yeshua's lifetime, having never existed on earth before. And as a result, everything about the law and the prophets now had to be understood within this new reality of the kingdom of heaven 
having arrived. This meant that the simple, literal sense of obedience to every Torah commandment and law and principle now, now incorporated an even higher spiritual sense and manifestation to it that included not only the here and now, but the future time when the end of all things would arrive. So it's not that the higher spiritual sense that Yeshua regularly spoke about was replaced with the uh, replace this simpler sense, simple, simpler literal sense of the Torah. It's that both were now in play. Thus, Christ's strong instruction that that just because he was about to introduce the Jewish people to this higher spiritual sense that went hand in glove with the recent arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth in no way meant that the people now had license to ignore or to disobey the law of Moses or that the law itself had changed in some way. What we read in later chapters of Matthew, even later on in the epistles, tells us that some Jews, a relative few, got the message. Others didn't. We shouldn't be surprised. The church is still struggling to properly understand Jesus' message in light of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, after that, he went on to deal with a number of Torah commandments which, because of the arrival of the kingdom on earth, followers ought to obey even more strictly and in another higher and better way than their fathers before them did. That is, the essence of what Christ instructed is very nearly the opposite of the common doctrine taught within institutional Christianity that says that Christ came to make the law much easier upon his followers. Some going so far is to claim that he abolished the law and the principles and the commandments of the entire Hebrew Bible. So Yeshua gives some examples of what he's talking about. For instance, murdering your brother is a capital offense. That's the way it is under the law, and so it's not to be done. Everyone knows that. Most people will never murder anyway. But now, upon the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, even being angry with one's brother is considered a very severe offense akin to murder. This is because murder happens when anger occurs first. So I ask you, which is easier, to avoid murder or to avoid anger? That's a rhetorical question, because we all know that not being angry is much more difficult. Next Christ speaks about adultery and he says that the law commands that a married man or woman is not to have sexual intimacy outside the bonds of their marriage. Yet, he says that now, upon the arrival of the kingdom, a man even looking in lust upon a woman is just as serious 
as the actual act of adultery. Now, men, which is easier, to avoid adultery or to not even look at another woman lustfully? Other examples are given, but you get the idea. So he sums up this portion of his teaching by saying that the point of it all is this. In Matthew 5.48, Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Perfection, says Yeshua, while of course involving our behavior, that is following the do's and the don'ts of the law, is more reflected by our deepest inner thoughts. Thus perfection, here meaning our moral perfection, that's the goal for believers. If we don't get angry with our brother, a moral failure, says Christ, we certainly wouldn't murder him. And if married men don't look lustfully at other women, it's another moral failure, then we won't be tempted to commit adultery. As Yeshua continues into what Bible's label is chapter 6, he expands the concept of moral perfection by addressing two regular activities of Jews, giving alms to the poor and prayer. Now, clearly, neither of these things on the surface involves disobedience to the law. That is, Jesus does not admonish the people that they're not sufficiently giving alms or they don't pray enough. Rather, giving charitably and praying, that was a given among Jewish society. Instead, the issue is about proper intent. That is, the inner moral condition and motive of the worshiper. That's the point. And if giving and prayer are accomplished with the proper moral intent, then drawing attention to oneself in the doing is the last thing we would ever think to do. So if people make a public show of giving and of praying, then it is evidence that they are not giving and praying with proper inner moral conviction. Once again, in light of the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven on earth, Christ says, here is how we ought to pray, and He proceeds with what the Church calls the Lord's Prayer. Now, in it, Christ shows us elements, the elements that prayer should contain, but also the humility and the moral attitude with which prayer ought to be made. Every prayer should be addressed to the Father. It should glorify the Father. And we should acknowledge that because He is the Creator. And because His will is always done in heaven, then His will also now needs to be carried out on earth, especially because the Kingdom of Heaven has now extended its range to include earth, or better, earthlings, people. Yeshua goes on to show us that we should ask the Father 
to provide for our physical and our spiritual needs and to be merciful and forgiving to us. At the same time, our prayers should demonstrate that we acknowledge our obligation to be merciful and forgiving to our fellow humans, and that we have no right to expect such compassion from the Father if we insist on holding back our compassion from others. Well, after showing us how to pray, Yeshua gives us some other do's and don'ts about common activities within Jewish society, such as fasting. That's because fasting was often associated with prayer. So his next subject now has been central to humankind since the Garden of Eden. That is, it's about accumulating wealth, or in our modern thought, making money. Now the subject's large, it's many faceted, so Yeshua addresses it from a number of angles. The first angle is, how are we to view the notion of wealth itself? We are to see it for what it is, temporary and subject to destruction. Building further on the matter of money and of wealth, Yeshua offers instruction about being generous with our wealth and uses the common colloquial terms of that day to categorize the level of, or even the lack of, such generosity. He says, the good eye and the evil eye. Then he goes on to explain about the eye being the lamp of the body, which essentially means that a good eye is is outwardly indicative of a generous spirit, and an evil eye is outwardly indicative of a stingy spirit. After that, Yeshua makes a principle out of what He has said thus far, and it is this, no man can have two masters, and the choice is between money and God. Money and God. And despite what many humans think, you can't have it both ways. Sometimes we overlook the simple fact that having two masters is really an oxymoron, and that is how the Jews would have understood it. It would be like claiming that you had two first dates. One or the other was the first, and only one can claim that title, no matter how we might try to spin it. Thus, in our four-dimensional universe, It's only possible for a man to have one master. All other influences will be subservient to that master, even if we don't realize it. Now, since the obvious answer is built into the question about the two masters, God must be that master. Then the next issue is, so what do I do about the material things that we all need? like food, shelter, and clothing. Now, I want to comment here that in no way was Yeshua suggesting that material possessions and money are wrong or evil. Rather, it is that one must not focus our life on it. We must not be controlled by money and wealth accumulation. 
Yeshua uses nature to point out that the birds and the plants are beautiful and they're well fed without their planting and sowing. Right? They're well clothed without making their own garments. Rather, God provides it all for them. Therefore, while he values all of his creatures, he values humans more than all other life forms. So Christ's argument is that if the Father provides so well for birds and for plants, he will certainly provide even more for human beings. Well, in the next to the last verse of chapter 6, Yeshua draws us back to the monumental importance of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth and what this is to mean to us. He says that first and above all else, we are to seek this kingdom and we are to seek God's righteousness. Now, God's righteousness is His will to save. And to be saved is the requirement for membership to the kingdom. So seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness are two sides of the same coin. Then, says Jesus, after seeking these two things, seek for all the physical and material things you have, or rather that you need. So it is not a matter of having the one or the other. It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of emphasis of the worshiper. So the bottom line to Yeshua's instruction to put God first in everything is that if we do so, then there is no need to worry about anything, especially not to worry about the future. See, by definition, worry is the opposite of faith. Therefore, faith solves the universal human problem of worry. All right, let's read now Matthew chapter 7. Open your Bibles, your complete Jewish Bibles if you have one, to page 1231. That's 1231. And we are going to read all of Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. For the way you judge others is how you will be judged. The measure with which you measure out will be used to measure to you. Why do you see the splitter in your brother's eye but not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye when you have the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly so that you can remove the splitter from your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may just trample them under their feet and then turn and attack you. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives. He who keeps seeking finds. And to him who keeps knocking, the door will be opened. Is there anyone here who, if his son asks him for a loaf of bread, 
he'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a snake. So if you, even though you're bad, know how to give your children gifts that are good, how much more will your Father in Heaven keep giving good things to those who keep asking Him? Always treat others as you would like them to treat you. That sums up the teaching of the Torah and the Prophets. Go in through the narrow gate, for the gate that leads to destruction is wide, and in the road is broad and many travel it. But it is a narrow gate and a hard road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Beware of false prophets. They will come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they are hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, or a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruits cut down and is thrown in the fire, so you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, But Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on bedrock. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew, and beat against that house. But it didn't collapse, because its foundation was on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a stupid man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the wind blew, and beat against that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was horrendous. And when Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the way He taught, for He was not instructing them like the, their Torah teachers, but as one who had authority Himself. Verse 1 of chapter 7 takes us back to how it is that we are to treat our fellow human beings, which is more often than not, the meaning of the term neighbor. By saying, do not judge, some believe that Christ has announced a 100% injunction against reasonable conclusions drawn from personal observations and experiences. But as Davies and Allison point out, if that were the case, we wouldn't be able to choose between true and false religions. The judging being spoken of, it's not referring to a judicial setting. Rather, it is about how we measure a person and their actions in a rather typical day-to-day -day activity. I want to pause here to make a point that I, I believe is much needed in Christianity. 
Just as judging another person is not being rigidly prohibited, but rather it must be done within the bounds of mercy and compassion, the issue is that nearly every matter of human interest is not as black and white as we'd like to make it. You know, it's ironic that especially Gentile believers at once rebel against the idea of following a rules-based religion, which is what they accuse Jews of doing, but at the same time want their pastors and their priests to give them a simple rule to follow regarding many circumstances they might encounter so that they can quickly solve a conundrum. Thus many Christians view the permissions and the prohibitions of the Law of Moses is too difficult, too inflexible, and yet at the same time they want black and white yes and no answers to complex problems. I want to give you an illustration by giving you an example of two extremes. I've heard the Catholic Church defend their priests from punishment for child molestation on the basis of Jesus having told us we're not to judge. I also know of women who were judged as sinful by the church elders because they heard that she had fled her husband in fear, and this without any personal knowledge of the facts. It's only that for them divorce is prohibited for any reason, so a woman who separates from her husband under any circumstances is automatically judged to be wrong and committing a sin. You know, when we live our lives according to our favorite verses or even parts of verses lifted out of context, or without considering all that the Bible has to say on a subject, then our viewpoints become skewed and polarized. The issue about judging that begins chapter 7 is not that we are to check our brains at the door of our homes or workplaces or church, but rather we are not to invoke what Martin Luther called self-centered wisdom. We are not to try to make ourselves look better or more wise or especially more pious by disparaging another. Thus, we are to be very careful, very considered in our conclusions about a person, always operating within the moral insights that God's Word provides for us. See, the key is to thoroughly know God's Word, such that we don't fall back on what amounts to sayings and partial truths. I want to be clear on what this instruction not to judge means. It means not to condemn or not to deplore our fellow man. And this because we are not his judicial judge. Rather, God is our judicial judge in heaven. And thus, says the second part of the verse, the reason we don't want to judge others denounce others is so that God won't judge us in the judicial sense. In other words, Christians today regularly talk about the final judgment, 
meaning a verdict is going to be rendered upon us, either guilty or innocent. That is the meaning of the second part of this verse, but that's not the meaning of the first half of this verse. This interpretation is borne out by the words of verse 2. For the way you judge others is how you will be judged. The measure with which you measure out will be used to measure to you. I want to give you an illustration of this that might help. An official judicial trial judge that we're all familiar with sitting on a bench in a courtroom is not going to have God judge him at the great judgment in the same way he applied our civil and criminal law to violators. So if a judge following the law in good faith in a court said, even in a court setting, determines that the accused is legitimately guilty of, let's say, robbery, and sentences that person to spend a year in jail, that judge is now not going to be later subjected to that same treatment by God. Rather, it is that in a non-judicial setting, by the criticisms and belief of an ordinary person, that our personal wisdom can best decide what was in another person's heart, what their inner motives were for their actions, and so we make a determination of how God views them, and so such an attitude means we've made ourselves now subject to God judging us, but in the ultimate divine judicial setting. So then, we will bear the eternal consequences of God's verdict upon us. So judging others from the sense of damning them and deploring them is a sin of high order. And it's bad for our eternal health, says Christ. And the only reason I can think of that he would bring up this subject is because it is something he witnessed happening all too often among the Jewish community. Now, I don't want to waste an opportunity to point something else out that seems to be pushed to the background within Christendom. In verse 2, as with things Christ has said earlier in his sermon, he again invokes a quid pro quo. What you do to others will have a direct result on what God does with you. Yes, God, of course, is loving and merciful and compassionate, yet that does not mean that the Father is like a kindly grandfather that looks the other way when his children and grandchildren sin. Rather, there are things we can think, things we can do, that will be proportionately responded to by the Lord. Measure for measure is often the biblical term used to express that principle. This is an old idea in the Bible, but Christ again demonstrates that no Torah principle or law has been abrogated by Him. Obadiah 1.15 For the day of Adonai is near for all nations. As you did, it will be done to you. Your dealings will come back on your own Head. Matthew 7.3 continues with this concept of judging others, condemning and deploring others. When Christ speaks about censoring someone 
who has a splinter in their eye, but you have a log in your own. Now, on the surface, anybody can understand this. We have an old folk saying that well captures the meaning. It's called the pot calling the kettle black. The idea is that the pot has been far more blackened by the soot of a fire, rendering it blemished, than the smaller kettle, which by the way originally meant a small teapot. And yet the pot points out the same flaw it has, an even larger proportion, than the lesser flaw on the kettle. So Yeshua then takes a subject that might be difficult to envision because it can exist too much within the realm of theory, and he makes it pretty easy to visualize by using extremes, an entire log versus a tiny little splinter. What he is talking about is an example of extreme hypocrisy. And the irony is that the self-righteous one with the enormous flaw is condemning the other person for their rather tiny flaw. It is not that the one is flawed and the other is not flawed. Both are flawed, because both are human. And in another sense, if you are condemning the same but less prevalent flaw of another, aren't you in essence condemning yourself? Let me take this to another level. What underlies this statement is the issue not only of hypocrisy from the pshat sense, but of inner moral defect in the remez sense. Hypocrisy, you know, that's pretty easily seen. It's pretty easily detected because it manifests in our words and in our actions. But inner moral defect can be hidden away, such that only God sees it. Further, just as another, rather, uh, anger presages murder, so does inner moral defect presage hypocrisy. The result of someone who has a log in their own eye trying to lead someone who merely has a speck in their eye is a classic example of the blind leading the blind. That is what is so wonderful about hearing and drinking in the words of Yeshua. We are hearing from a God-man who has no log or even a splinter in his eye. He is without sin, he bears no wrong motives, no inner moral defects, and no hypocrisy. It is the opposite of the blind leading the blind. It is the one who sees leading those of us with so little sight. You know, I'm going to make a confession for myself as a pastor and Bible teacher that I suspect many of my calling may well share. We barely have more sight than those we attempt to lead. We're not Jesus. We are closer to the blind leading the blind. It's just that God in His mercy has opened our eyes the slightest bit more with the purpose of our helping and being a shepherd to those, you, that He loves. 
I'm really not much more than Balaam in the Old Testament, who was full of flaws. Yet God, for his own divine purposes, opened Balaam's eyes enough to show him something important and wonderful. In Numbers 24, verses 1-5, through 5, we read about Balaam. When Balaam saw that it pleased Adonai to bless Israel, he didn't go, as at the other times, to make use of divination, but he looked out towards the desert. And Balaam raised his eyes, and he saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, and then the Spirit of God came upon him. And he made his pronouncement. This is the speech of Balaam, son of Beor, the speech of a man whose eyes have been opened, the speech of him who hears God's words, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. Oh, how lovely are your tents, Yaakov, Jacob, your encampments, Israel. The speech of him who hears God's words. That's the key to this passage. It is God's words, not the thoughts and oratory of Bible teachers or pastors or even prophets, which are wonderful. It is God's words that have the power to remove the log and to open our eyes and relieve us of our blindness. This is why we must take Christ's words to heart, never doubt them. My only goal, the goal and the purpose for Seed of Abraham Torah class is to present you with God's words in such a way that they will also open your eyes at least as much as they've opened mine. Yet the words of Numbers 24 verse 5 tells us something critical for the church. The Gentile, Balaam says, Oh, how lovely are your tents, Jacob, your encampments, Israel. See, unless and until Gentile believers acknowledge the loveliness of Israel before God and their important place in redemption history from the past, in the present, and on into the future, God's words are going to fall flat upon us. Those wonderful words will not be properly understood or applied because they're taken out of their ultimate context. And so our sight will remain greatly blurred, as was Balaam's, until he sincerely sought and he believed God's words. Now, verse 6, this can sound rather harsh to us. And there is an inference at the beginning of this verse that can be misunderstood. It says, don't throw what is holy to dogs. This is what I'm speaking about. See, in our time, dogs are beloved pets, even considered by many to be family members. That was not the way it was in any case in the first century, especially among the Jews. See, dogs were wild animals. They were unclean scavengers that roamed the streets of cities, usually in packs. They were detested. They were avoided because they were considered unclean, even dangerous. Thus, 
This is how we must understand the word dogs is used here. Now, while it is true that in a few passages in the Bible the term dog is used as an expression applied to homosexuals, usually as male prostitutes, and by the way, the term homosexual didn't exist then. In fact, it was only coined in the 19th century. That's not the case in verse 6. Christ is once again using nature, so to speak, to make his point. First it's dogs, then it's pigs. So let's try to put on our first century Jewish mindset to understand how that crowd would have understood Christ's words. What did people throw to dogs? Their garbage. Leftover or spoiled food. Dogs were the city's sanitation workers of that time. So, what is food now? Next question. What is food that is holy? Only food that has been taken to the temple, much of it sacrificed, and then given to the priests as their portion to eat. Therefore, it would be terribly inappropriate to give the priestly holy food to things, dogs, that are unclean. The next part of the verse, don't throw your pearls to pigs, is but another angle on the same subject. Pigs were unclean animals when used as food. Contrary to what some may think, within the Hebrew religion of Yeshua's day, merely touching a pig did not mean that you contracted uncleanness from it. Rather, it was that a pig was not permissible for food. The word unclean came to be used as a very broad and general term, whether for the inherently unclean, whereby coming into contact with it indeed transmitted ritual impurity to the one who did the touching, such as touching a dead body, as well as for animals that you could not consume as food, but touching them as live creatures had no effect at all. Pigs, shellfish, shrimp, for example. So, dogs were deemed unclean by tradition. Pigs were pronounced as not permitted for food. So in Christ's story, both dogs and pigs are unclean to the Jewish people, but each for a different reason. Now, pearls were the most valuable of precious objects. They were more valuable than gold in that day. So the idea is that that of highest value ought not be presented to that which is not worthy. I can do no better than to quote from the ICC commentary on this matter. There it says, in Matthew 7, 6, this rule, by virtue, virtue of its new context, becomes a comprehensive statement about the necessity to keep the realms of the clean and the unclean distinct. The new context is, the kingdom of heaven has arrived on earth. But it is a new context that surrounds an old rule. We find the essence of this rule in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 29, verses 32 through 34, we read this. 
Aharon, Aaron, and his sons will eat the ram's meat and the bread in the basket at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They are to eat the things with which atonement was made for them, to inaugurate and consecrate them. No one else may eat that food because it's holy. If any of the meat for the consecration or any of the bread remains until morning, burn up what remains. It is not to be eaten because it's holy. Okay. This passage in the Torah provides the basis for Christ's statement about not throwing holy food to dogs, unclean, unclean creatures. That is, not even spoiled, not even unused holy food was to be eaten by the dogs, or by anyone, or by anything for that matter. Why? Look at Exodus 29 verse 34. After the priests have eaten their portion, the remainder is not to be merely thrown out, it's to be burned up, thus destroying it so that no creature, not even scavengers who were created by God for ridding the earth of what is unclean, not even they can have it. Further, within the new context, which is the kingdom of heaven, the pearl, the most precious object, was used metaphorically as the kingdom itself. So the kingdom is not for the unclean. I think to put this in the form of a, of a rule or principle, it's this. While we are commissioned to take the good news of the kingdom of heaven to the world, we are not to waste our time with the hard-hearted or with those who outright reject the message. I'm going to I'll leave you for today with these words of Messiah Yeshua that Matthew records in chapter 10 regarding this exact issue. From verses 5 to 15 in Matthew chapter 10, we read this. These 12 Yeshua sent out with the following instruction. Do not go into the territory of the Goyim, that is, Gentiles. Do not enter any town of Shomron, Samaria, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those afflicted with Sarat, expel demons, you have received without paying, so give without asking payment. Don't take money in your belts, no gold, no silver, no copper. And for the trip, don't take a pack, an extra shirt, shoes, or a walking stick. A worker should be given what he needs. When you come to a town or a village, look for someone trustworthy and stay with him until you leave. When you enter someone's household, say, Shalom Aleichem. If the home deserves it, let your Shalom rest upon it. If not, let your Shalom return to you. But if the people of a house or a town will not welcome you, or will not listen to you, leave it. Shake its dust from your feet. Yes, I tell you, 
it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town.